Well, good morning. My name is Brett Hastings. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Church, and it's been a joy to have the opportunity to continue in this series in Habakkuk on how to live by faith in perplexing times. We've been studying this book of Habakkuk, which is really a dialogue between Habakkuk and God, Yahweh, concerning some of the questions that Habakkuk has. And the book opens by Habakkuk crying out to God. He sees all the violence, he sees all the injustice of Judah, and he cries out to God. The wicked king Jehoiakim, all the elites, the prophets, the priests, they were oppressing the poor of the land. There was the violence of divorce rampant within the community, the sin of idolatry everywhere, Judah looked just like the pagan nations around them. Thus Habakkuk cried out to God asking why he had not judged them yet. Crying out to him wondering how long it would be before judgment came, if it ever would. In chapters 1, verses 5-11, to Yahweh answers Habakkuk, And he told him that he took Judah's sin so seriously, he wasn't not judging it, but he was taking time to raise up the wicked Chaldeans to conquer and exile them for their sins. And at the end of chapter 1 that we looked at last week, Habakkuk hears God's response to his first cry, and he says, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Lord, that's not what I'm asking for. I'm asking for you to judge the wicked of Judah, not to take all of us into exile. He thought that judgment was a bit too severe. And Habakkuk asks, how could God use an even more wicked nation to judge Judah? Would not God's justice require him to destroy the Chaldeans first? They're more wicked How could God subvert the created order with this judgment? But in Habakkuk's response, we saw great humility last week. He corrects his wrong thinking, but he continues to cry out to God. He expects Yahweh to correct him further, but in faith, he expects Yahweh to answer his difficult questions. And so, if you're not already there, turn in your Bibles to uh, the book of Habakkuk, and we are going to read verses 2 through 5. 2 through 5. And if you're sitting there thinking, we're only getting through three verses, I'm not sure how we're going to make it through the book in the rest of this month, how I'm going to make it through. Uh, I haven't figured that out yet either, (laughs) but I'm sure we'll make it happen. So, Habakkuk chapter 2, beginning in verse 2. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. So today we have Yahweh's response to Habakkuk on what it means to continue to walk by faith as a child of God. And so I've broken this up into uh, three points. Verses 2 and 3 are instructions in faithfulness. Verse 4 is a principle of faithfulness. And verse 5.3 is the practice of faithfulness. So instructions in faithfulness, a principle of faithfulness, and the practice of faithlessness the practice of faithlessness. And for us, we are going to be instructed right along with Habakkuk as to how we can continue to walk by faith in a world where we don't understand what God is doing. 
But before we get to the specific points of reply that God gives Habakkuk, he has preliminary instructions for his prophet. So point number one, verses two and three, instructions in faithfulness. He begins by saying, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. And then the command later is, wait for it. So Habakkuk, he presented his perplexities in the previous section. Mainly, how could a holy God use a nation more wicked than Judah to judge them? And how could the creator of the universe subvert the created order by enslaving Israel to another nation? And on a larger scope, how could he enslave the entire world to the tyrant nation of the Chaldeans? which was a subversion of the created order, the way God created things to be, created men to live and to flourish and to be free. Instead, they're going to be made like fish to be hauled in by the Chaldeans and enslaved. And Habakkuk, he waited with eager anticipation and faith that Yahweh would answer him. And here, Yahweh's second response is similar to his first, and he begins it with a set of commands. He says, write it, make it plain, and wait. In these last few lines of verse 2, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. Uh, There has been a lot of ink spilled trying to figure out what they actually mean. One view is that this is a command for Habakkuk to post the message clearly somewhere, like on a billboard, for everybody to see. So as you're walking by, you can see it clearly, read it, and pass it on to others. Second view is this is a writing it down so that a herald may carry the tablet and run throughout the land as a messenger to declare the message. And there's several variations on both of those Things, but one commentator takes all the things that many people have said and he sums them both up in a statement basically saying that all the views communicate the same emphasis and that that is that the messenger is to communicate a message of, that has lasting importance. And, and I quote, the message is to be clearly understood, assimilated, preserved, and propagated. End quote. So this commentator looks at all the things all the various commentators have come up with and said, you know what, in summary, big picture, the meaning of this text is that the message is to be clearly understood, assimilated, preserved, and then propagated. In Yahweh's first response to Habakkuk in chapter 1, the charge to preach the message of the coming judgment, it was implied It wasn't commanded, but here there's the explicit command to take the message and to share it. It's to be written down and shared. Thus, as a matter of faithfulness, Habakkuk must propagate the message. But I really like Patterson's summary that the message is to be clearly understood, assimilated, preserved, and propagated. So before Yahweh gets to his answer... He makes it clear that it's a matter of righteousness and faithfulness that Habakkuk share the message that he's about to receive. That's what Habakkuk was to do. And I think it's beneficial for us and helpful for us as Christians to understand that that is our duty and privilege as well, to understand God's message of salvation, to assimilate it into our thinking, preserve it and propagate it into the whole world. But I think those four words that he used to summarize it are also helpful just to think through to evaluate our own gospel proclamation. We could ask just a few questions of ourselves to evaluate if we're being faithful to the task of the proclamation of God's message. And for New Testament believers, the gospel message. So if we just take those four words that he used one at a time and ask the question, how well do you understand the gospel message? Any of us could go out, we could take a tablet with a written message and we could proclaim it. Here's a script, go read it. Any of us could do that. But if anybody presses us on the contents of that message, 
and we don't have a good understanding, we can't adequately proclaim the message. We have to adequately understand it to proclaim it. Every believer has an adequate enough understanding of the simple gospel message because they've been saved by it. But do you have a good enough understanding to get the point across clearly to somebody else, to proclaim the gospel to somebody else? How well do you understand the message that is to be proclaimed? It is a matter of faithfulness for every Christian, just as it was for Habakkuk. That we get to the place where we have a good enough understanding of the message so that we can clearly communicate it to others. How well do you understand the message? And we could ask a second question. How well are you assimilating the message? How well are you conforming your life to Scripture, to the Gospel message? Do you preach one thing You tell people one thing, but your actual life, you live in total contradiction to that. Look, we all live with some degree of discontinuity between what the Bible says, what we know, and how we live. Because we're not perfect, we aren't totally sanctified, we're always going to live with some kind of discontinuity between what the Word says and how we live until we live with the Lord fully sanctified. But are we on an increasing trajectory toward righteousness and Christ-likeness? Are we growing more like Christ every day? Though it's very, very slow, over a long period of time, can you look back and say, I am more like Christ than I used to be? Or do you merely confess? You say, yep, this is the message, but it has no effect on your life. Are we living as if Christ is our Lord? Repenting regularly of sin? Turning away from it? Or do we live as if Jesus is not the Lord of our life? We live as if we are the Lord of our life and we do whatever we want. It is a matter of faithfulness that you conform your life to the Word of God. You conform your life to what you confess to be true with your mouth. So how well are you mortifying sin and assimilating the Word of God into your life? And a third question we could ask is, how well are you preserving the message? I once had an older man in ministry tell me that, and this was an excuse for him to not read his Bible anymore, he told me, he said, I have forgotten more than you have learned. And so that was his excuse not to read his Bible. He had learned so much, he didn't need to learn anymore in his own eyes. But his comment betrayed him because it's precisely for that reason that we forget that we have to work to preserve God's Word in our hearts. I mean, how many of you have spent a significant amount of time memorizing a large portion of Scripture? And then you move on to something else, and a few years later you go back and you just, you just don't have it. It's because preserving God's Word in a cracked, leaky vessel like ours, it's hard. To preserve it, we have to keep putting it in there, and it just keeps falling out. It leaks out of the cracks. So we have to work hard to preserve it in our own minds. We have to continue to inject it into our own minds. But we also preserve the message by giving it away. Travis mentioned this some time ago when he was in 2 Corinthians preaching, but he said, when you take the priceless message of the gospel, it's the one priceless object that you protect by giving it away, by preaching it, by telling everybody about it. And that begs the fourth question, how well do you propagate the message? How well do you spread the message? Are you faithful to share the gospel? Or do you fear the scorn of the world? Do you fear man and you shrink back? You don't fear God to proclaim His message faithfully as He has called us to. 
but you shrink back in a world that thinks it's utter foolishness. Can't get past Genesis 1 before they think you're totally foolish, much less get to Genesis chapter 2. Do you pull a Jonah when the opportunity arises and you run the other way? Or do you step out in faith and you proclaim the message that the Lord has given us to proclaim? It is a matter of faithfulness, beloved, that God's messenger spread the message. And it is every Christian's duty and privilege to herald this message. And it's not a matter of faithfulness that people respond the way you want them to. You could faithfully proclaim the gospel message to a hundred people, and maybe none of them respond in accepting the gospel. But regardless of how they respond, even if they respond in hate, you are faithful 100% of the time because you are faithful to the task that God had given you. In John 3, Jesus tells us that we must be born again to be saved and that that is a work of the Holy Spirit to regenerate our heart. But it is by the faithful proclamation of this message that the Spirit is going to take and use in people's lives to draw them to the Lord to regenerate their heart. And so, beloved, it is a matter of faithfulness that we be attentive to the proclamation of the gospel. And if you, I mean, I'm pretty sure I could take a poll in the room and all of us would say, yeah, look, I just don't feel like I share the gospel as often as I should. All of us are going to feel that way. But if you want more opportunity, if you feel like you have some things to learn before you jump out there, I would encourage you to talk to Nick Allen or Jared Petroff or Wayne Anderson or Jesse Allen now. They're all helping lead the red team in our street evangelism. And look, you can go to them and say, hey, look, I just, I'd like to tag along with guys who know what they're doing for a week and see how to do this to get some practice. We've had people do that. And go out with them and watch them as they do street evangelism and it'll give you practice on a stranger that you don't really care about so then you can go and take what you learn to your family who you do want to really, really reach with the gospel. Strangers are great to practice on. You're never going to see them again. Lord willing, we see them in heaven. But chances are, the Bible tells us it's a wide road that leads to destruction. Most of them are not going to listen First instruction in faithfulness was to proclaim the message accurately and faithfully. And the second instruction, if you weren't already convicted, the second instruction is to wait patiently. Look at verse 3. He says, For still the vision awaits its appointed time, that is the coming judgment. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay, or it will not be late. So Habakkuk, he was struggling with seeing the injustice of Judah go unpunished. And then with the subsequent revelation that God gave him, he was struggling with the Chaldeans not being judged. He was struggling with wickedness ruling and God not judging it according to Habakkuk's timetable. God was not acting quickly as Habakkuk thought he should. Now, I'm sure none of you have ever been impatient. But, the lesson that the Lord is teaching Habakkuk here is it is a matter of faithfulness that we learn the lesson to be patient and wait on the Lord's timing. When we're confused and we don't know why certain things are happening in our life, why injustices go unjudged, God commands us to be patient and wait. There is an appointed time for judgment. And even if there seems to be injustice all around, people getting off the hook, justice will one day come. Be patient. He says in the last line of verse 3, it will surely Come. And this is a certain Hebrew grammatical construction 
Uh, it's the Hebrew way of expressing absolute certainty. It was the same way that the Lord told Adam, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. The literal Hebrew there is, to die you will die. And here it's that same grammatical construction, to come it will come. As certain as the judgment and death came to Adam, though it was delayed, so judgment will come upon the wicked of Judah and upon the Chaldeans. And God tells Habakkuk that he has an appointed time. He has determined all of these things and they will not happen a moment too soon or a moment too late. He has a fixed appointed time for them. God is the creator and the sustainer of all things. He's sovereign over human history. He knows all things. He, is, he has perfect timing. And he is essentially telling Habakkuk here, look, I have this all planned out with perfect timing. You let me be God. I have been sovereign over your whole life up to this point. Let me be God and you be a man who waits on my timing. Don't try to be God by thinking your timing that you would choose with your finite understanding, your small human understanding. Don't think that that is somehow a better idea than the infinite God of the universe whose thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways, infinitely higher are his thoughts than ours. As a matter of faithfulness that you as a man or a woman wait on the Lord of the universe and not think that you could do things better. You are no God. Humble yourself. Don't think so highly of your own thoughts and your own understanding. When God's timing seems to be delayed, if it seems slow, like it's never going to come, wait. Be patient on God's timing. Waiting patiently on God, and His timing is a matter of faithfulness. So whether you are looking forward to the promises of God, or you're wanting injustices in this life to be made right, or a certain time in your life to be passed, it's a matter of righteousness and faithfulness that we not try to play God and force our wills like Abraham and Sarah did, but wait patiently for his timing. He knows what he is doing. So the preliminary instructions before Yahweh gives Habakkuk the answer to his perplexities is proclaim the message, keep preaching the message, and keep waiting patiently for its fulfillment. Share the message, wait patiently, and repeat. Share the message, wait patiently, and repeat until it is fulfilled. And for us, this is the coming of Jesus Christ. We continue to be faithful to preach the message that He has given us and wait patiently for judgment to come upon the wicked. So those are the preliminary instructions before Yahweh answers Habakkuk. Continue to be faithful, continue to preach, continue to share the message, and wait patiently. And that brings us to point number two, the principle of faithfulness. The principle of faithfulness. This is the answer Habakkuk has been waiting for. He is finally going to get the answer to all of his perplexities. So here it is, verse Four, the answer that he has been waiting for it says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Well, hmm, I'm not sure I liked that answer. I'm not sure Habakkuk liked that answer either. I mean, Habakkuk, he had some really profoundly important questions. 
that I would really like the answer to. And on the face of it, this just doesn't seem sufficient. But here, Yahweh answers Habakkuk, not in practice of how he is going to do things, but in a principle. Yahweh didn't tell him the specifics to his answers. He just gave him the principle that he could operate how God would operate in human history. How Habakkuk can expect God to act. And in summary, the righteous shall live by faith, while the wicked will perish. The righteous shall live, but woe to those who are wicked. They are ultimately doomed to destruction. God, in principle, will deal one way with the righteous and another with the wicked. To the righteous, he promises life. But to the wicked, he promises judgment. And the practice of this principle is laid out in the rest of this chapter as you see all the woes listed throughout chapter 2 that we'll get to uh, next week. But we as New Testament believers, we can often take the weight of this verse for granted. And so I wanted to slow down a little bit this morning and just camp on this and, and mine it a little bit because... As one person says, this is really the essence of the Christian gospel right here in verse 4. And so I wanted to stop and take some time uh, on it this morning. Really just to show you the gospel message throughout the entire Old Testament. And Paul's explanation of it in the New Testament is really just an, an explanation of what he was reading in the Old Testament. So I want to camp on this a little bit and speak of its importance. In about 250 AD, Rabbi Simlai, he asserted that the 613 commandments received by Moses had been summed up by David in 11 commandments in Psalm 15, by Isaiah in six commands in Isaiah 33:15, by Micah in three commands in Micah 6, 8, by Isaiah again in two commands in Isaiah 56.1, and by Amos in one in Amos 5.4. But a hundred years later, Rabbi Nachman ben Isaac said that the one verse that sums up the entire 613 commands of Moses is Habakkuk 2, verse 4. This is the single verse that sums up the law of Moses. And one commentator, Boyce, he rightly remarks about its importance for Christians. He says, and I quote, This is a great text. It could even be called the great text of the Bible. To understand it is to understand the Christian gospel and the Christian life. It is so important that it is picked up by the New Testament writers, twice by Paul in Romans 1.17 and Galatians 3.11, and once by the author of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews 10.38, end quote. And another commentator says that this is the central theme of all the scriptures. The righteous shall live by faith. And what we often think as a New Testament revelation from Paul, never before seen in scripture, the just shall be saved by faith, it's actually an Old Testament truth that Paul, as an Old Testament scholar, was just mining the depths of the Old Testament as he's teaching in the New. That is to say, Old Testament saints were not saved by obeying the law. Just like New Testament saints, the Old Testament saints obeyed because they had believed, because they had faith. They were saved by faith, and thus they walked in obedience to that. But let's look at a couple verses uh, to draw all of this out. And I want to begin in Deuteronomy chapter 32. So take your Bibles, go back to Deuteronomy chapter 32. We're going to be going through a lot of verses this morning, so I apologize if I move too quickly for you. Try to work your fingers quickly to find those verses. But Deuteronomy 32 Verses 1 to 5. And what I kind of want to walk through this morning is just show you 
the various points of the gospel message that reinforce that the righteous live by faith. That the gospel message that we have from the New Testament is the same message that we find in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 32, verses 1 through 5. This is the song of Moses, one of the last things he told Israel before he died. Verse 1, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain. My speech distill as the dew. Like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, His work is perfect. For all His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. They have dealt corruptly with Him. They are no longer His children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. So this is like the bad news that must precede the good news of the gospel. God's standard is perfection. His ways are justice. He is perfect. And those who are blemished, those who have sinned, they are separated from Him. Now take your Bibles and go over to Psalm 14. Psalm 14. We're going to read verse, just verses 2 and 3. And this is the basis for which Paul has, says Romans 3.23 that we read earlier. Again, Paul just elaborating on this, explaining these verses. Chapter 14, verses 2 and 3. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. But what does God find when He looks? Verse 3. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So, this is the basis Paul writes Romans 3.23. He quotes it there. There is none righteous on the earth. All are doomed without hope apart from God. You don't have to turn there. You can begin going to the book of Isaiah, but we're all familiar with Isaiah 53. We know from Scripture that the only way for us to be saved from the penalty for our sins is to be washed clean. If you've been blemished, you have to be washed clean. You have to have your sins forgiven. But God cannot just forgive sins and pretend like they never happened, just willy-nilly. He has to actually deal with them. He's just, so every sin must be punished. And so Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray, everyone to his own way. But here's the good news. The Lord has laid on him, that is the Christ, the substitutionary atoning sacrifice, the iniquity of us all. He has sent a substitution to stand in the place, in your place, to take your sin. Now, if you're not there already, go to Isaiah 61. If you went to 60 or 56, just go a little further to 61. And we're going to read verses 10 to 11. But the beginning of this chapter, it was read by Jesus in a synagogue, and Jesus told them that this passage was being fulfilled in their midst, that they were hearing the message of salvation, that the message of salvation was going to go forth and people were going to be set free. Good news for the poor in verse 1. And what we're going to read is just the results of someone who receives by faith this proclamation of good news. Isaiah 61, 10-11 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and the garden causes what is sown it to sprout up, So the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before 
all the nations. So Isaiah declares that the, such a one who turns to the Lord in faith, this is the message Jesus came, the salvation that Jesus came to bring, one who robes someone in foreign righteousness, not his own. Whatever deeds the unclean one had done were covered in the righteousness of God. And this language is the basis that Paul could say, and he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. So the Old Testament saint who believed God at his word was justified by his faith, clothed in righteous robes, having had his sin paid for by the eternal Son of God. And yes, it was a sacrifice not yet made in time and in space. Jesus had not yet come. But the sacrifice was as good as done the moment that God decreed it before the foundation of the world. Christ's sacrifice paid for sins past, present, and future. Regardless of the point in time and space that He came, it was as good as done the moment it was decreed and eternity passed. And those who believed God at His Word, the message that had been revealed up until the point where they heard it, if they trusted what God had said, they believed in faith at what He said, they would be saved. And they had an expectation of resurrection hope. Even in the Old Testament, where Old Testament saints, though there wasn't any special revelation from God's Word that indicated they would have an eternity with Him in glory, the Old Testament saints believed it in faith. Job 14, verses 14 and 17, Job says, If a man dies, shall he live again? which seems like he's uncertain there. He goes on, he says, All the days of my service, I would wait till my renewal should come. You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands. So Job seems to connect his iniquities being covered over or atoned for with renewal after death. And he seems here, though, as if he's questioning the reality of it, but flip over a couple pages to Job chapter 19, where he expresses quite clearly there's no question in his mind of his resurrection hope. Job 19, beginning in verse 23. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Isn't the kindness of God amazing? That's what Job asked for, and here they are right here. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, that's death, Yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. So here, there's no question. There's a clear proclamation that he believes his Redeemer will one day stand on the earth. And that after he dies, after his body has failed... He says, yet I will see God in the flesh. I will see Him in my flesh. My very eyes. And that means His body is going to be resurrected. Even Job, which is possibly back at the time of Abraham, possibly the oldest account of any narrative we have, apart from the creation up to the time of Abraham, he had a resurrection hope. A certainty that his God would save him, even from the pangs of death, and resurrect him. But one final verse to point to regarding this. Look 
at Psalm 73. Josh read this last week for scripture reading. I just want to point this out of Asaph's hope of resurrection and future glory with the Lord. Begin in verse 23. Psalm 73, beginning in verse 23. Leading up to this, he's, he has a similar uh, complaint and perplexity as to how the, uh, the wicked prosper on the earth. And this is how he responds. He says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? So he's looking to the glory of God. He's looking to being in God's presence. And he's thinking about this and he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. So the psalmist trusted the principle that the Lord revealed to Habakkuk here, that the wicked would perish, but the Lord, that the Lord would receive the faithful into glory. And this psalmist, he desired nothing besides that day coming. Other verses we could mention, Daniel 12, 2, you don't have to turn there, but that makes very clear that there will be one day a resurrection of the unjust unto eternal torment and the righteous unto eternal life. So Old Testament saints, they had a clear understanding that one, their righteousness was not their own, that they were stained, that they needed righteous robes to cover them, that this righteousness was God's. And they had a hope that no matter what happened in this life, they trusted in faith that they would live in the presence of the Lord forevermore. After death, that there would be a resurrection and they would live with Him in glory. This is the gospel in the Old Testament. And for you, You see your sinfulness in light of God's perfect righteousness. You turn from your sins. You can have this same hope. Believing that God will forgive and receive you into His presence. But this is one of the central themes throughout Scripture. And it is summarized here in Habakkuk as the righteous shall live by His faith. Those who are righteous will live by faith. They'll walk in accordance to all that the world has, all that the Word of God commands us to. Psalm 19, 25 to 32. You can write that down and read it later. And such a one who has faith will seek understanding in the Word, continue to walk in all that the Lord has commanded. But back to, if you're in Psalm 73, go back to Habakkuk chapter 2. This is the principle of faithfulness. The soul whose life and his heart is puffed up or proud, it's not upright within him. It's a contrast to the one who is faithful. It's not obvious in the English uh, that such a one will perish. But that's the contrast here. If you look down afterwards, it's, it's a big, long contrast of the, the proud one is doomed to destruction. But here, the, the righteous will have life according to God, will have eternal life, whereas the wicked will perish. But this word for puffed up, if, if you have the ESV, it's puffed up. It's a very rare word. Um, if you were in my Samuel Sunday School class, you're familiar with this. This is the same word. The only other place it's used is in 1 Samuel 5 and 6, referring to the swelling of the Philistines where they, to, to describe their tumors. The tumors that plagued them because they were proud. They took the Ark of Yahweh. 
So 1 Samuel 5 and 6, and this right here, the only occasions of this word, and it's possible that they used this, Habakkuk used this word in particular to refer to the Philistines. The swelling or the puffing up, indicating that their proud end is death, just as the Philistines had. But as I mentioned, if it's just assumed here that the those who are not upright, the soul of the proud, if it's just assumed here in this verse that they die, it's described in great detail in the rest of the chapter that death is the end of the one who is proud, who does not humble himself in faith. But the principle is this. The proud, unrighteous man is doomed. He will ultimately reap what he sows in judgment from God, But the righteous has the expectation that God will deal with them according to their faith, resulting in life with God in eternal glory. And the faithful walk according to the commands of God. He walks in faithfulness to God while the wicked heap up their sins against God. But God will one day reward the one who has faith and judge the one who is not upright. And that is the principle that Yahweh answers Habakkuk with. And it kind of goes back to the wait, be patient, Habakkuk. I know you are perplexed by all this injustice and why I have not judged, but wait and trust. This is the principle. I will reward you for your faithfulness and I will punish the unfaithful. But this is Yahweh's answer to Habakkuk's perplexities regarding Yahweh using a more wicked nation to judge Judah, as well as Yahweh's judgment subverting the created order, he tells Habakkuk the righteous person lives by faith and trusts him to be God. Trusting that God knows best, that he knows what he's doing, he's going to act according to his glory and the good of those who love him. Faith is trusting that God is the good and just judge of all the earth, who is good and does good and and rewards those who trust in Him. But I want to fill in those details a little bit more. This is the answer that God gave Habakkuk and the principle, but I want to fill in the details just a little bit more this morning. Habakkuk had some good questions. How can Yahweh let sin go unpunished? How can he not judge sin right now? And how can Yahweh judge Judah with a nation more wicked than them? Well, we want to begin with Deuteronomy 29.9, which says, The secret things belong to Yahweh our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all things according to this law. So Moses told the Israelites... The secret things belong to the Lord. The things that God has done from His secret will, His hidden will, are not for us to question, are not for us to know. But the things that are revealed in His Word are for us so that we can do all the words of this law. So why does God do the things that He does? Scripture says those things are for God to know and for us to trust. He has revealed for us all that we need to know for life and godliness, to walk according to His Word, and we need not demand an answer from the Lord regarding His secret will. As we've mentioned, we know God delays judgment to give people time to repent. And how many of us are not thankful for that? If God were to judge us immediately for our sins, there would be no hope. None of us would be here if he didn't delay his judgment. We praise him for that. But why he chose us, his secret will, we have no idea. It pleased him to do so. Not because of anything we have done. But how can God judge Judah with a nation more wicked than them? Well, if you were... You've been here for a while. Travis went through Luke chapter 12. I'll just read a portion of that for... Time's sake, Luke 12, 47 to 48, speaking of a servant whose master went away and the master came back, says, And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will, he will receive a severe beating. 
But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So Jesus reveals an answer not obvious to Habakkuk, and that is that Judah, the nation of Israel, was actually more culpable. They were more deserving of punishment, more than all the wicked nations around them, because they had the law of God and they totally rebelled against it. Judah knew the Master's will and they refused it. They turned to all manner of wickedness and idolatry. And the Chaldeans, yes, they had the law of God written on their hearts, but they did not have the revealed will of God. Thus, the Jews were more deserving of a severe beating, in Jesus' words, while the Chaldeans were only deserving of a light beating. But we continue, how could God judge Judah by subverting the created order, sending men back into slavery? Well, Romans 1 makes explicit that this is a form of God's judgment to hand people over to their wicked desires. And that included, in, in Romans 1, handing them over to the dishonorable passion of homosexuality, which is a subversion of how God created men and women. So it's a matter of, do we trust Yahweh to be the judge of all the earth? To judge and execute judgments that are just. I mean, we may think a judgment of God upon someone else it goes too far, like Habakkuk struggled with. And many struggle to accept the doctrine of hell because they think conscious eternal torment is too much. How could God subject people to that? Well, if God is a good and just God, then he gets to decide what is just for punishments, not us. When we think some judgment of God might be too harsh, we follow the example last week, we correct our thinking and by faith we trust that the good judge of all the earth knows what he is doing and that he is just one commentator puts it well. He puts in his own words God's answer to Habakkuk, and this is just uh, his own paraphrase. He says, and I quote, Do not ask why I am using the wicked Chaldeans to punish my people. Leave that to me. The all-wise God who rules every detail of your entire life for your temporal and eternal welfare. Remain faithful, trust me, and you shall live. End quote. By faith, we trust God to be God even when we don't understand why He is doing what He is doing. We continue to live by such a principle. And that brings us to point three. After he's given him some preliminary instructions, he's given him the principle of faithfulness. Now we see the practice of faithlessness. In verse 5, he says, Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as shale, and like death he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Just by way of summation here, one commentator says, unlike the righteous person who carries on in his life in faithfulness to God, the wicked goes on in his arrogance, devoid of upright desires. And it is this principle that will be applied to the case of the Chaldeans, whose moral and spiritual failure is cataloged in the verses to follow. So this verse is a kind of summary statement of the wicked person's ultimate end, the one who is faithless, be swallowed up in Sheol and death. And following this summary statement, the Chaldeans, their sins are further listed and condemned by God with impending judgment. And I may, I've got some notes on this verse, but I may save them till next 
week as I get into this. I debated on whether or not to do that, so I'm just going to change it up. I'm going to get into this next week when I talk about all the woes, but this is kind of a summary statement on, uh, on all of that. So as we come to the end of this, as you look at what it means to live by faith, if you're here today and you have not believed in faith upon the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ to pay the penalty of all of your sin, if you have not renounced your own life to follow Christ in faith, then your end is being swallowed up in death and destruction. You do not have the hope of eternal life the future hope of all those Old Testament saints that we looked at, the opposite is true for you. The wicked perish in eternal torment. You will be devoured and swallowed up in judgment. But there is hope. You can be given robes of righteousness if you repent and believe in Him. No matter what you have done, you can be forgiven in Christ. And if you think you have time to do that later, do what you want right now, I'll do it later. I'll believe in Jesus later. That is presuming and thinking you can go against God. And it will end about as well for you as it did for Israel who died in the wilderness. And in closing, I just want to read a passage from Hebrews It's a warning to the unbeliever and an encouragement for the believer. And it's where the writer of Hebrews quoted these verses from Habakkuk. Hebrews chapter 10. And I'm going to begin in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, Hebrews 10, 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has the spirit of grace... For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall from the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And here's the hope for us. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that if there are any who are here, who sit here week in and week out, and they hear your word preached, and yet they continue to spurn your call to repentance, They continue to spurn your kindness in delaying their judgment. I pray that they hear the weight of these verses, that they are trampling underfoot the Son of God. 
and profaning the blood that he shed on the cross, offering them forgiveness. A far worse judgment befalls those who hear your words, your saving gospel, and reject it than those who never hear. And I pray for any who are here this morning who that is their attitude, they reject you, that you would open their eyes to see their sinfulness in light of your holiness. I pray for those of faith today that they would be encouraged by these words. The just shall live by faith and we are not of those who shrink back, but we are those who have faith and our souls will be preserved. Help us to have the faith of the Old Testament saints who believed that they would be one day resurrected and be with you in glory and be able to follow the example of those who the writer of Hebrews writes to that they were happy to have their property plundered and to be abused and to be persecuted knowing that we desire you above everything else. Whom have we in heaven but you, O Lord, and there's nothing we desire besides you. May that be true of us. May we not cling to this world and the things of this world, but trust you in faith, obeying you proclaiming the message of your salvation to all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.